what a time of worship. Amen. I don't know if you ever do this, but sometimes I love when we all sing together. Uh, the gathering of God's people, worshiping him, lifting our voices to him. And I know some of you might be like me and not a very good singer. Um, I'm the kind of singer that, you know, I feel bad when people stand next to me who don't normally stand next to me during worship. And I always feel a little obligated to lean over and be like, my, I'm, my bad, I'm really sorry. Um, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. But, um, but I love worshiping. And if you feel like, well, I just really am not a great singer, uh, I'm so thankful that God doesn't rate our worship on how well we stay on key. Amen? Uh, it's the heart of the worshiper. It's just shouting praises to him, lifting his name, and praising him. But I, I was standing down here, and I was uh, just for those first couple of verses of that last song, just kind of le- listening to what the, the voice of God's people sounded like. And, and what a praise uh, to think about one day. Uh, we will do that with the multitudes of the heavens, uh, praising him and lifting him up forever and ever and ever. And so I pray that you were blessed by the worship this morning to remember who you are in Christ and, man, how good he is to us. Amen. Uh, he is so, so good. And uh, Renee's special, what a blessing that was to just hear. Uh, it's only Jesus. It's only Jesus. Uh, there's nothing else. It's not Jesus plus this. It's Jesus plus nothing brings satisfaction and peace and eternal security. And so we're so thankful for what the Lord is doing. This morning, uh, we are in week three of our four-week series uh, entitled, First Comes Love, Then Comes Blank. And we've already covered two different words that we put into that blank line there. And if you uh, missed those, you can go back on our app, North Goodland BC, in your app store or online, northgoodland.org, and you can find that. There's also resources on, I believe, uh, Spotify and and different ways to connect with the material. But uh, if you missed the last two weeks, I encourage you to go back, maybe this week, watch those back, kind of catch up on that. Um, But as we've said all along, uh, we desire to, to look into God's word and to draw out some biblical principles that we can fill into that blank line there. And so as we're getting ready to do that, we're in week three, as I said, and we've covered a lot of material. But if you'd like to follow along in notes, we have notes available on our app as well. You can go into uh, media and then messages and then find today's date there. You can follow along with an outline. But I really want to encourage you to think about not only what we've talked about already, but what we're going to talk about this morning in that we want to be followers of Christ in our marriages, and those marriages reflect Christ-likeness. And so we've covered a lot of material, but as we've said recently, the goal of the Christian marriage, this is kind of our main emphasis, the goal of the Christian marriage is not happiness, it's Christ-likeness, amen? Amen. It's not just finding ways to be momentarily happy. Uh, Happy wife, happy life is the biggest lie and the most self-serving lie in marriages today. And when I hear Christians say it, there's a part of me that just kind of cringes a little. Um, Because that's not how we approach marriage. So that uh, when we look at our marriage, it's not trying to keep the other person happy in momentary things so that we can kind of coast through. Or some kind of, as we said last week, a contractual arrangement. Okay, I do this for you and you do this for me. And as long as we keep doing that, we're fine. But if you drop the ball, then now I'm mad at you and now there's issues and now we're going to argue and fight because my felt needs aren't being satisfied by you. And so we can create this kind of contractual relationship. But really, marriage is not a contract. It's a covenant. It's a covenantal love. It's not this contractual, you do this, I do this. It's a covenantal love. We enter into to say, no, I'm, I'm entering into this covenant to love you and care for you. And until death do us part, I'm going to do all that I can to be Christ for you. Now, do we satisfy that 100% perfectly in our human marriages? Of course not. That's why forgiveness and grace as we receive from Christ, right, in that covenant he has with us, 
I'm so glad that my covenant with Christ isn't contractual, where if I do this, then he'll keep doing that. If as long as I keep going to church, he'll keep saving me. I'm so thankful that's not how it works. As John MacArthur said so famously, if you could lose your salvation, you would. What what an arrogant thought as well to think that other people could lose their salvation, but you haven't. That's so arrogant, isn't it? Well, yeah, yeah, you could lose your salvation. I haven't, but you could. As though somehow I'm so much better than you. Now, I may be better than some here. I don't know. But we're going to talk about this morning how we need to apply a different way of thinking in that regard. But I think as we talk about marriage, we can come into it with such a mindset of just, it's this contractual thing. It's this expectations being met, so therefore I'll do this for you. And man, but Christian marriage is so much more than that. Now, I do want to say, some of us would fill this line in with many different descriptive terms. Some negative some positive. Uh, some of you would say first comes love, then comes, and you would put a negative word there. Some of you would put a positive word depending on your background, your experience, what you've gone through in relationships. I also want to say that this series, although a marriage series, as we've said every week, and I try to remind myself to say this, it's not just for those who are currently married. Uh, we desire to, to address, address things and touch on things that will speak to not just marriage relationships, but other relationships in our life, and most importantly, our relationship with Christ. So we're going to try to unpack some things that will deal with all those areas and not just those who are currently married. Also, this isn't just for those who are currently married and everything's going great. Or you're currently married, but things aren't so great. Or you're in a different situation of life altogether. This is, again, trying to deal with some biblical principles that we can apply to all of our relationships, first and foremost with our relationship with Christ, and then to those outward relationships around us. And so, again, what's the goal? The goal is not happiness which is fleeting and temporary and can be taken away at a moment's notice. The goal is Christ-likeness. And so, again, let's turn in God's word, as we've been doing every week, obviously, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We want to dive into God's word this morning, our foundation for our faith, our foundation for what we believe. And so if you uh, are using one of the Bibles provided, if you don't have a copy of God's word, whether on your device or in print. There's Bibles there in the seats around you. Please feel free to use one of those. Uh, And if you're using one of those Bibles, you can just turn to page 827. So if you're using one of the Bibles provided, page 827, Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to read the first 11 verses. So Philippians chapter 2 in the New Testament, verse 1, we'll begin in just a moment. I want to thank you for having God's word with you, whether on a device or in print. Um, This is, as I said a moment ago, our foundation for all that we believe. Amen? Uh, If you came this morning to hear my opinion, you're going to be disappointed. uh, Because I don't have anything to give you apart from God's word. Uh, But if we came this morning to hear from God's word, I believe we'll leave satisfied, content, and full in Christ. And so this is, again, our foundation. So Philippians chapter 2, because this is Paul writing to a local church. And he's encouraging these believers. Um, One of the cool things about this church is that they were one of the first to partner with the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. And they gave beyond what they had. They actually give to the point of causing them to have needs. Uh, They gave so much to Paul's ministry that they had a, a lack of want because they just, we don't have enough to take care of these other needs that we have. But they were just so adamant to give to what Paul was doing so that the gospel would go forth. And that's famously towards the end of the letter where Paul says, but my God shall supply all your needs 
right? That in Christ Jesus, he has all these riches. He'll give you all that you need. We love that verse out of context, right? No, the Bible says he'll give me everything I need because he's rich. That's about how we paraphrase it. Uh, We forget the part that the reason they had needs is because they gave so much to the mission, right? So again, this is a famous letter here by the Apostle Paul writing to the church, but I love chapter two. We're going to dive into verse one. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now, this is Paul speaking to the church, to the body of Christ. And verse 2 is a very amazing verse. We're not going to really camp there too much, but I love what he says there. Fulfill ye my joy. He's saying this would bring me much joy. That you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. This doesn't mean they're all the same. doesn't mean they thought the same. This means that they're driven with the same purpose, the same intent. They're focused and fixated on Christ. Now, there's a line in the song that we sang that says, Our eyes will be transfixed. My gaze will be transfixed on Jesus' face. You know, we can do that now. We don't have to wait till heaven to fix our eyes on Christ. Hebrews tells us that, that we, we set our eyes to Christ. We set our fixation on Christ. We're, we're, we're gazing upon him, not in a quick glance. In Hebrews, where it says that we should fix our eyes on Christ, it's not this glance. It's not this kind of, oh, kind of a casual look over, peruse what's going on, and look back to what's important. No, no, when, when, when the author of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Christ, it's saying, I lock my eyes on Christ. I'm fixated on him. And so Paul says here that we should be of one accord, one mind, same love. How do we do that? By fixing our eyes, our attention on the person of Christ. This doesn't mean we're all the same in uniformity. This means that we are united in a common purpose. We are driven with the same mindset, which is Christ's likeness and the gospel going forth. Verse 3. If I spend that much time in every verse, we'll be here till 1 o'clock. So let's just keep moving. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen. I always know Vic's got my back. So, uh, verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. Man, I could mm, keep moving. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Even Paul saying, he didn't just die for you. He went through the death of the cross. goes on to verse 9. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Not some. Not some knees will bow, every knee will bow. Of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For what purpose is all this going to take place? To the glory of God the Father. And what a passage. I want to pray. We thank you for the spirit that you give to us that indwells us at the moment of salvation. That as we read your word. The very author of the word of God is within us, enlightening our minds and drawing to our attention the the ways that we need to apply this. 
Lord, and, and I know that if I stopped right now, if we had an invitation right now where people could respond, Lord, the reading of your word and the moving of your spirit is all that we need. You're already, if we're being honest with you and honest with ourselves, you're already pricking the hearts of many here today, both in person and online. Those that just read these words and the spirit begins to reveal to us that there's areas that we know that we need to see addressed. Now, I love reading, Lord, what you've done in church history where men of God would get up and merely just read John chapter 3. Just the reading of a chapter and people would rush the altar to be saved. Lord, you don't need man's words. You don't need my uh, clever illustrations. You don't need anything of me, anything of us to do the work that you desire to do because it's purely a work that you're doing by the Spirit through the Word. Now, Lord, we know that you use us to bring attention to certain things or certain details in the Word. And so we thank you for those in our lives that have spoken to our lives for Christ. But, Lord, we know that if we're being honest, you're already working. And so, Lord, I pray, number one, that I wouldn't get in the way of what you're doing already in the hearts and minds of your people. But number two, I pray that you would draw us to application. I pray no one would leave this room, Lord, nodding their head, saying amen, in agreement, but then leaving this room and living the exact same way they came in. Feeling as though they're somehow more spiritual because they heard a word this morning, and that makes them better than those that didn't. Lord, I pray we would not be foolish like the author of James tells us that we would not just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers as well. That we would not deceive ourselves because we heard the word preached, but that we'd be doers of the word and we would receive that blessing of application, that we would be walking in the light as you are in the light. Lord, again, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior, I pray that they would realize that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. None of us are perfect. We've all sinned, myself included. And yet, because of that sin, we've earned a wage, which is death, separation from you, in a place called hell. But Lord, you didn't leave us in that state, but that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we just read, to die on a cross for our sins. As we've sung about this morning, to be buried and rise again. And that anyone who professes you, who believes that you died on the cross for their sin, repents, which means to turn from their sin, and trust in Christ this morning, can and will be saved, granted eternal life, and held on to eternally because of your great love for us. And so, Father, would you work in all these things? If there's somebody here that doesn't know you, I pray they would come to know you before they leave this place. Somebody watching online, that they would come to know you before this service ends. And Lord, again, why? For what purpose? So that the glory of the Father would be made known. Thank you, Father, for all that you're doing, applying this now to our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning... As we're reading chapter 2, some of you might have already guessed where we're going to go with that blank this morning. But we want to talk about the fact that first comes love, then comes humility. Humility. In this popular passage, we read that we are to humble ourselves in the same attitude or mindset as Christ and how we serve and love others. Of course, this applies to all relationships and mostly has applied to how we see others in the church. Paul's writing to the church, so we say this is how we should see each other in the body of Christ. That's absolutely true. That's, that's a great interpretation of this text. However, it doesn't stop just in these walls. 
And I know what you're thinking, but pastor, it's hard to be humble when you're so perfect like me. I know, I can relate with you. We're there. I got it. You wake up in the morning to this, right? Right about the time you wake up from that dream and you realize that's not how it works. But some of us struggle with humility. We struggle with this idea of, we think, you know, I want to be loving and humble to those in the body. But listen, if we're being honest, some of us walk out of these rooms and we're great at being humble and serving each other here. But man, at home, it's a whole different story. At home, it's a different thing because you know what? The church isn't there. And so I'm not saying we're going to do this perfectly, but we need to be careful that we don't just believe it's just for this gathering that we walk in this mindset of humility. This humility that we're talking about in Philippians 2, I believe can be most evidently applied in our homes. But we don't do that, do we? Where do we usually start? Out here, right? It's like anything else. We don't start as close to home. We start as far away from home. And then we think, I'll just work back from there. You're going to fall. It's not going to work. You've got to start with you first, then your home, then your community and your church. And so we need to understand how we can apply this to our lives. So how can we live humble lives like Paul's talking about here to the church? Well, there's two things I want to dive into. Now, I know what you might be thinking. That means it's going to be a quick sermon. Not so fast. First, we recognize that Christ has humbled himself. How do I walk in humility as a follower of Christ? Well, first, I have to recognize that Christ humbled himself. We've said this in the last two weeks. Christ is our example in everything we've talked about because he is the greatest example of anything we can talk about as a follower of Christ because we're following Christ. So we recognize that Christ humbled himself. We're going to look at the passage again. We're going to look at it kind of in reverse order. So we're going to go to verses 5 through 11 again. And then we'll start back up at verses 1 through 5 in a moment. So we're kind of taking the reverse order here. But chapter 2, verse 5 Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, this attitude, that word mind means attitude or mindset, the way we approach our way of thinking. Now, how do we possibly do that? Well, first we realize we have been given the mind of Christ through salvation. Amen? Romans tells us that he has given us the mind of Christ. So that means what he says in verse 5 is 100% achievable. I can have the the mindset and the attitude of Christ because I'm in Christ. If I'm apart from Christ, I can in no way have the mind of Christ. Make sense? Because I'm in Christ, I've been given the mind of Christ. And so when Paul says, let this mind be in you, let this attitude be in you, he's not really saying, get better at this. He's saying, allow this to rule and reign in how you live. You already have it. Now let it live out in your actions, your attitudes, your words. So he's saying, let this be evident in your life. Now he goes into verse six, and we'll dive into this in just a little bit more detail. Who being in the form of God, talking of Christ, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in likeness of men. That's the incarnation. That's the virgin birth. That's when Jesus Christ, the, the Godhead, part of the Godhead, the I am equal with the father, equal with the son, In pre-existence, he did not come into existence at his birth with Mary. He had already existed. He was there in the beginning, right? When God said that they were going to form the earth and let us make man in our image, Jesus was there. And so Jesus didn't come into existence at his birth. He took on flesh. He became in the likeness of men at his birth. And that's what Paul's talking about here. For what 
purpose did he do this? Why would he take on the form of a servant? Verse 8. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That is why it is the name of Christ that we are saved. It is not the name of your denomination. It is not the name of your parents. It is not the name of any other name. And we, in Jesus' name, but I'm kept in my name. And that's really what we do when we try to work and keep our salvation. No, Paul says, no, no, there's no other name like the name of Christ. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some confess now that he is Lord and Savior. Some will confess then that he is judge and king. We will all confess what that confession is, is dependent upon are you in or not in Christ. That every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, we've been going through Revelation on Wednesday nights now since the summer. And we just kind of got into Revelation 19 and the return of Christ. And that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And when he returns in his second coming, that the world will know that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. That, that this verse, this passage will be fulfilled and all will know. Now, some will still stand in rebellion and rejection. Some will still stand in, in animosity towards God and want to fight against God. Let me just tell you, if you haven't read Revelation 19, there's no fight. It's just God victorious. Why does Romans say that we in Christ are more than conquerors? Now, we're going to dive into this on Wednesday night, so you still got to come. So don't think you got all of it because you didn't get all of it here, but you're going to get some of it. You're like, I don't got to go Wednesday. Yes, you do. Come Wednesday night. 645. Okay, so when you think about that passage, we're more than conquerors. The church will come back with Christ when he returns. But you're going to notice that the church has no part in the battle. The church doesn't do anything. We don't fight anyone because we don't even need to lift a hand in the battle. Why? Because we're more than conquerors. A conqueror is one who shows up, defeats the enemy. We're more than conquerors. We're already victorious and we didn't lift a finger because in Christ we've already won. And so when Philippians 2 says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, this is not saying this may happen, this will happen. So let's walk this out a little bit because it's hard for us to recognize the level at which Christ humbled himself. You see, again, Jesus is our premier example. Jesus is our premier example of what it means to humble ourselves. Jesus' example shows us that when we humbly set aside our power and our pride, we glorify God. When we set aside our power and our pride, we glorify God. When Jesus took on the form of a servant, he endeavored to please the Father in all things, which he did. One author said it so well. I, I wanted to read this to us this morning. Christ did not hesitate to set aside his self-willed use of deity when he became a man. As God, he had all the rights of deity. And yet, during his incarnated state... He surrendered his right to manifest himself visibly as the God of all splendor and glory. Emptied points to the divesting of his self-interest, but not of his deity. What do we mean there? Verse 6, when it talks about the fact that he was, in verse 6, who being in the form of God, thought not to be equal with God, Jesus never ceased to be God while on planet Earth. Uh, Jesus never ceased 
to be God. He merely made the decision to not utilize the fullness of who he really is and was in displaying that to mankind. Now, we get a taste of this on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John are there. Most likely Andrew as well, but Andrew was kind of a background guy. I don't know about you, but some people are background people and some people are upfront people, okay? Andrew was kind of a background guy. I, I tend to think he was mostly there with the three, but he doesn't get talked about a whole lot. Poor Andrew even got identified as like, aren't you Peter's brother? But Andrew was older. So all the older brothers in the room are like, you love when your younger brother is the way that you get identified, right? We all love that. And so Andrew's there most likely, but they see this amazing displaying of God fullness of who Jesus. I think it was just the taste. I don't think that they saw the fullness of who Jesus Christ really is and was. But for the majority of his ministry, he didn't display that equality with God. He didn't manifest that in a visible form. He spoke of it. He talked to it. It was evident, but not to the degree that it will be when he returns again. So he allowed himself to be in the form of a servant. He chose to do that. Here again, we read that Christ being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. One resource noted this, that the word here is the idea of the word morphe or morph. It is a Greek word that translates as form in verse 6. It means that which corresponds inwardly to an outer appearance. So essentially, Paul is saying that the Son of God shares fully in the very essence of God. To borrow a phrase from the Nicene Creed, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is very God of very God. He is God through and through. We must understand that at no point in Jesus' earthly ministry that he ceased to be God, equal in divinity as the Father and the Spirit, and yet a separate person in the Trinity. See, he humbled himself under God the Father's perfect will. Now, why do we need to emphasize this? Because there are even those in the church, meaning the church proper, the whole of the church in our country today, that believe that when Jesus Christ became a man, when he was born of a virgin, that he somehow ceased to be God. And that's one of the oldest false teachings in the early church that started to creep in, that they denied the full divinity of Christ. This is why one of the very first councils of church leaders in the 300s, it's been misconstrued as where they supposedly picked the books of the Bible. That's not true. But in, at the church of Nicaea, what they did was they came together, the council of Nicaea, they came together and they discussed one key topic. You know what that was? 400 years of Jesus being on planet earth, they were already starting to doubt, was he really God? Was he fully God at all times? You know what the decision was made among that church council? He is very God of very God. And here we are all these years later, and you know what people still debate today? Was he really God? Wasn't he just a good teacher, a good moral man, a good influence, a good example? And there are those that are standing in pulpits today across churches, those churches that I would deny are churches, because they're not built on the gospel, the foundation of Jesus Christ, which is the foundation of the church. That's what Jesus said. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He says, upon this rock, I will build my church. He wasn't talking about Peter. He was talking about the confession of Peter. That Jesus Christ is the Christ, the anointed one, the son of God. And that is the foundation of the church. So any church that claims a different foundation is not the church. It might be a great place to gather and hear some motivational thinking. 
get motivated to go get that raise. It might be one of those, but it's not a church if it's not built upon the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ never ceased to be God. Years ago, I had a conversation with somebody that was saved for a long time. And we were talking about something, and they actually attended the church for a while. This church had been in basically similar churches, Bible-believing Baptist churches, most of their adult life. And we were talking, and this gentleman looked at me and said, I don't really believe that Jesus Christ was fully God while on earth. And they referenced this passage, that he laid aside all of his deity to become a man, and then he died on the cross as a man. But if Jesus Christ was just a man, his death is insufficient. He's not a proper sacrifice. He's not the spotless lamb of God. He's a sinful man. And so Jesus Christ, it's important we understand that we do not rob him of his true identity. He is the God man, Christ Jesus, the only mediator between us and God. And so Jesus Christ never ceased to be God, but he did choose to humble himself and lay aside his interest to submit to the father's will. Now, secondly, How do we walk in humility? How do we live humble lives? Secondly, we recognize our humility in Christ. We live out what Christ demonstrated before us as we walk in Christ. So verses 1 through 5. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels of mercy, that basically means that this idea of saying your heart is full of mercy. Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same joy, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through vain or through strife or vain glory. Empty praise is another we can say vain glory. What does that mean? This is those in church that say, oh, I got that, brother. I'll take care of that for you. No worries. And then for weeks and weeks and weeks, they want to remind you about how they took care of that. Come on. They probably got a bruise back there from all the patting on the back, but they still want some more. And this happens in Christianity and church all the time. Vain glory and strife, meaning I'm going to either do this to cause up some issues or I'm going to do this so that all the praise is given to me. And there are so many in churches across our country today that are serving in the church just so that somebody says, man, I appreciate you, and, and you're awesome. And they go, yeah, I know. Well, they don't say that outwardly. What do we say outwardly? Mm, praise the Lord, brother. But they go home and think what? I'm awesome. Man, that church would fall apart without me. Man, that church needs me. You know what Paul says? That's vainglory. It seems like you're being praised, but it's empty. There's no substance. There's no weight to it. Why? Because it's fruitless. But in turn, man, when we in Christ can serve the Lord and someone would say to us, man, thank you for doing that. We outwardly say, praise the Lord. And inwardly, we appreciate the thanks. Obviously, everyone does. But inwardly, we better be so guarded and instantly say, no, Lord, this is all to your praise. Look, I'm just a sinner saved by grace that needs Jesus every day. Thank you for using someone like me. That's what Paul was saying. And by the way, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who's writing this, Wrote a third of the New Testament. Traveled over 10,000 miles by foot preaching the gospel. Acts chapter 16, the first known European convert to Christ. Paul led to Christ and Lydia. All of this happens and Paul says of his own testimony, I'm not even qualified to be called an apostle. And in fact, if you call me an apostle, make sure you say I'm the least 
of the apostles. And by the way, I'm the chiefest of all sinners. Was he glorifying sin? Of course not. He was humbling himself to realize I don't deserve even that title because of what I did to Jesus's church. And it's not false humility. He meant that. And so what was his example for that? He looked to Christ and said, man, if, if Jesus Christ can humble himself, when John, in John's gospel, when Jesus got down on his hands and knees and began to wash the disciples' feet, he says, if I can do this for you, surely you can do it for one another. If I'm the one that, by the way, deserved all praise and service, and he does, and he humbled himself, how could we not then humble ourselves before each other? And so again, as we talk about being humble in Christ quickly, and I, I kind of mean that this time. Sometimes quickly means quickly. Sometimes it means nothing. Okay. It just makes you feel better. So I'll say quickly. And then you go, oh, he's almost done. Okay. We strive to be humble before God. What do we talk about here when we talk about humility in Christ? We strive. And that word strive is so important. We strive for this. We may never reach this in perfection. And most likely we won't. But we strive for it. We press unto it. Now, this is incredibly easy when we realize how desperately we need his grace. It's hard to be proud before God when you have nothing of value to plead your case for mercy. We have no righteousness or good works to offer. We have no merit of our own. We have to desperately beg for his grace, convince him to save us or continue to save. Surely the ugliest is spiritual pride because it is all a gift. I, I was reading through some things and looking at some things, and I came across this painting. I want to throw this up here and show you guys this quickly. But I thought this was a really cool depiction of something. Now, in this painting, that's Peter that's kneeling before Christ. And this is a reference to Matthew 16, when Jesus is giving Peter the keys to the kingdom, representing the apostles having the authority to lay the foundation of the church. Now, Peter was known as being boastful, arrogant, prideful. And I love this picture because it shows Peter humbling himself before Christ, kneeling before Christ. Yes, receiving the ability to do the things that God's called him to do, but again, not in equality to Christ. He doesn't stand eye to eye with Jesus and say, yeah, you're right, I deserve this. He humbles himself. He bows down and he says, no, I'm unworthy of this privilege. I'm unworthy of this moment. And I love this depiction of this because it shows that to me very vividly that this is our position before Jesus. Of course, we're sons and daughters and we don't come crawling on the floor as though we're just kind of outcasts. But I pray that when we go to the Father in prayer, we know we can come boldly, but we still humble ourselves before his mighty hand. And so I love that picture there. I wanted to share that with you guys because I think boastful Peter became humble Peter as he began to walk with Christ even throughout the New Testament. And we too should humble ourselves as we've been given a great privilege to serve God in whatever capacity he gives us. But the truth is we don't deserve any of it. So let me ask you a question this morning. And you guys can go ahead and take that down. But I want to ask you this morning, as I said that, you don't deserve any of it. It's all a gift to serve him. I don't want you to answer out loud, but I want you to ask, answer this question between you and the Lord. Do you believe that? Like, do you really believe that it is unworthy, that you are unworthy of the position that God has given you or put you in? You're unworthy to serve him because of you, you knowing where you've fallen short and where you lack. Or do you believe that, no, God's lucky to have me. No, God should be thankful that I'm allowed him to save me. Are we humble before him? If we try to serve our, our wives or our husbands by lording over them rather than kneeling before God to guide us, 
then we have failed to think soberly or humbly about ourselves considering Jesus' example, not just in our service to the king, but in our relationships with others. And so we strive to be humble before God, but we also strive to be humble before others, including our spouse. Marriage is a gift of grace, and we should recognize it as such. Since we have experienced the transformative life of Christ by the Spirit, we then ought to live in unity one with another. The key to unity is being like-minded in love and purpose. We see that in verses 1 and 2 of Philippians 2. To do that, we must be able to put aside our self-focused ambitions that would come at the cost of another and humbly recognize that the world, our faith, and our marriages do not revolve around only our homes and thinking that we are the center of attention, but that we walk into our homes to think, how can I serve those in this home? How can I be Christ-like to those in this home? We will see so much joy and peace in our relationships. Now, I want to read this quote to you, and it's a little bit lengthy, but I absolutely love this. A South African pastor wrote in the 1800s about this idea of humility, and he says this, It is easy to think we humble ourselves before God. Humility towards men will be the only sufficient proof that our humility before God is real. Think about that for a moment. It's easy to say, I'm humble before God, but what's the evidence of that humility before God? Our humility before others. That's the proof of that. That humility has taken up its abode in us and become our very nature. That we actually, like Christ, have made ourselves of no reputation when in the presence of God's loneliness of heart has become not a posture we pray to him, but the very spirit of our life. It will manifest itself in all our bearing towards our brethren. The lesson is one of deep import. The only humility that is really ours is not that which we try to show before God in prayer, but that which we carry with us and carry out in our ordinary conduct. The insignificance of daily life or the importances and the tests of eternity, because they prove what really is the spirit that possesses us. It is in our most unguarded moments that we really show and see what we are. I absolutely love that. It's in those unguarded moments, those everyday moments that we really actually show in our responses who we really are, or maybe whose we really are. To know the humble man, to know how the humble man behaves, You must follow him in the common course of daily life. And again, we're all striving for this. None of us have arrived. The Apostle Paul says, I've not arrived. I'm just learning every day to walk more with Christ. We all know that we struggle in this area of putting our selfish wants and desires in the backseat and learning to humble ourselves before God and others. And we might think, "If, if I don't think of what I need, who will? If I don't take care of me, who will? But the truth, the truth is, of course, we can express our needs and wants if they agree with God's will. However, we are not consumed by those things. Rather, we are consumed with a desire to strive to live humble lives, to recognize my opportunities to serve others. And when we strive in this way, I truly believe we will find our needs met. Foremost and fully satisfied in Christ, apart from what others say or do. So my question to you in closing is this, will you choose, will we choose today to humble ourselves before the Lord and allow that humility to flow out into our daily lives, especially in our marriages? What choice will we make today? To walk in humility as Christ gave us that example, 
making no reputation of ourselves, but everything about the Lord and serving others, including our husbands and wives? Or will we continue to live a life that is consumed with what I want, what I need, and everyone else better revolve around me because I'm of utmost importance? How would you respond to that question this morning? I'm going to have you bow in prayer. We're going to have a time of invitation before our baptismal service. But I want to ask this as you begin to pray. Go ahead and bow your heads right there where you are. I want to ask, and I've mentioned this the last two weeks, and I want to emphasize it again. If you're here today and you're married, maybe your spouse is with you, maybe they're not for whatever reason. Would you come today and bend a knee at the altar? And if your spouse is here, maybe you'd come together and say, Lord, would you conform us to your example? That we would live in humility before you and live in humility before one another. And I would love to see the marriages of our church, the families of our church, pray prayers like that together. Maybe not here this morning, but maybe at home behind closed doors. So if you're here today and as you begin to pray, maybe you would come forward when we stand in just a moment and say, I'm going to pray with and for my spouse and we would come and pray. Or maybe, maybe you would come and pray and ask for God's wisdom and how to apply that. If you're here today, as you bow your heads there, we begin to pray. If you don't know Christ, I pray that you would come to know him this morning before it's everlasting too late. A prayer of faith simply expresses our need of a savior, our reality of our sin, that Christ died on the cross for our sins, that we can confess him, call him Lord, repent of our sins and believe that he died for us and he will give us eternal life. So whatever it is the Lord is doing, would you respond to him? Lord, would you move through this time? We'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand this morning as we have a time of invitation? How would the Lord lead you to respond this morning as we begin to pray? Maybe you'd come, bend a knee, and say, Lord, would you strengthen me in humility this morning?